Thank you, Victor, for that happy reading. It actually is a funny chapter, 1 Samuel 5, but also fairly severe and strange. But today we're looking at Psalm 96. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there, it's page 595, 595, the Psalm 96. And it's a, a wonderful psalm, which is a call to praise the God of Israel. It's, it's a wonderful call to praise Yahweh, the Lord. For verse after verse, you find him referred to here by name. Eleven times in just 13 verses, you'll see that word Lord printed in uppercase there, where the Hebrew text has the name of God, Yahweh, on each occasion. That is, it's not simply a psalm praising God. It's a psalm praising Yahweh, the God of Israel, Yahweh by name. And it calls upon us to worship him in the splendor of holiness. For Yahweh is holy. God is holy. This is the verse that used to be translated down in verse 9 there. Worship him in the beauty of holiness which some people reversed and misunderstood it completely, saying that you've got to worship God in the holiness of beauty. Uh, beauty has no necessary holiness about it at all, but people then turn worship into something that involves aesthetics, that you must do it in beauty. But you don't worship God in the holiness of beauty, you worship God in the beauty of holiness. The thing that is wonderful about God is his holiness. The verse is about the beauty or splendor, as it's translated here quite rightly, of holiness. That is his uniqueness, his specialness, his difference. To make something holy is to set it apart as different from everybody else and different from anything else. And God is fundamentally holy. There is nothing that you can compare with God. Nothing that you can compare with Yahweh. He is so special. He's not like the other gods, uh, the gods of the nations. They're nothing. They're weak. They're beggarly. They have no power. They, they're worthless. And so you can say, well, we're using the same word, God, gods. He's the ruler. They're rulers. But their ruler's nothing like the ruler. Their God's nothing like the God. This uniqueness of Yahweh, this holiness, meant that his people also had to be holy. They also had to be different to everybody else. They had to be unique amongst the peoples of the world. They had to be set apart from the rest of the world, consecrated to Yahweh, special to him living his way and not following the patterns of the other nations, not doing what everybody else does, especially not worshipping the gods like they worship the gods. You weren't to worship the gods and you weren't to worship Yahweh like those gods. Yahweh is different and Yahweh's people must be different. That, of course, is true of Christians to this day. We are countercultural people because we are God's people, Yahweh's people, the people of Jesus. 
You can't be a Jesus person and be just like the non-Jesus people. You actually have to be different. You have to be holy, separate. Yet within the Old Testament, there was this other theme of God, namely that he was the creator of all things and of all peoples and of all nations. So though he was the God of Israel, he was also the God of everybody. He wasn't just the God of all nations, he was the God of everything. The gods of the Philistines or the gods of the other nations were limited in their sphere and influence to those nations. A conflict between the nations was a conflict between their gods. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, was not a nationalistic God like that. He wasn't limited in power to fight for his people and only his people and nobody else. He wasn't a local God whose power only existed within the promised land, but he had no power in other people's lands. The gods of the nations were like that. They only stuck up for their own nation and their power tended to be limited to the area that their nation lived in. But the God of Israel, yes, he was Israel's God, but he was the creator of all. And therefore he was everybody's God as well. And all peoples, all nations, all lands were to worship him. Yet within, Israel, within the Old Testament, this kind of tension between the God of Israel, who's the God of everybody, is never really resolved. Israel would rule over all the nations one time. The Messiah would become their king. But was he to become their king by conquest, by conquering them? Or was he to become their king by being their saviour? How was the king of Israel going to rule over all the nations of the world? Today's psalm reflects that tension. For its context is the Ark of the Covenant. The, the contract that specifically God made with Israel. It was put, the key elements of it, in a box. That is, God wrote the fundamental part of the covenant with his finger in the tablets of stone, which we call the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And those words, those stones were placed in a box, which for whatever reason we call an ark. An ark is a box, a box is an ark. So don't get thrown out there. Those three letter words, and so when you're in Scrabble, you can use either of them depending on the letters you get. But it means the same thing. In the time of Moses, God directed this ark, this chest, this box to be made, made of special wood, covered with gold, with angels on the top of it, and the Ten Commandments were to be laid in it. By its description, it looks something like this. You can see, if you, you just go to the website, you'll find any, any number of these kinds of pictures of arcs coming up. The key to the ark was not that it was gold or an idol for the people to worship, of course, but that it was the, f the fundamental document of the covenant, the constitution of Israel, the contract with God, was inside the ark. That's where it was carried. And that covenant word of God 
stood at the heart of the people, stood at the heart of God's people. It was right in the centre of the tabernacle. It was in the end going to be placed in the Holy of Holies, the, the spot in the temple which was symbolic of where God was in relationship to his people because he related to his people by his word. And his word written was there in the box. In a superstitious stupidity, they took the ark into battle against the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 7. In the days when Eli was the priest who judged Israel and had two corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But under the punishment of God, the Philistines defeated the Israelites at that battle. And they captured the ark. And they killed both Hophni and Phinehas. So that when the old priest Eli was told of his son's death, and when he was told of the loss of the ark, he fell over. And being aged and heavy built, he broke his neck and was killed. Yet, as we read in 1 Samuel 5, and we read just a few moments ago, the ark brought no blessing upon the Philistines. In fact, it brought great cursing on the Philistines. Everywhere it went, the people were struck down by God with death and tumours. Can you imagine being one of the five cities of the Philistines? And you hear what's happening down in Gath, and they're going to send it to us. They've they've destroyed Ashkelon there, they're going to send it to us. It's the kind of present no one wants to receive. Here, take the ark, it's just killed some of our leaders and the ones who are still alive are all blessed with tumours. You take it and you can see it was a hot thing. They all wanted to pass on, no one wanted it. So in the end, they, well, they got rid of it and sent it back to Israel. But especially in the events that took place in Philistine, The god, the half-man, half-fish god called Dagon was struck down. Uh, They're a coastal people, the Philistines, and fishing was an important part of the fertility religions they had. And so their god, Dagon, was the god of fishing and the god of fisheries, and he was half-fish, half-human. And this god, as we've seen in different ways, he's presented... Uh, always with kinds of fins on him as well. He, he was struck down in an episode that frankly brought great humour to the Israelites and to the writer of 1 Samuel. Dagon falling down face first had to be picked up and put back in his place. What kind of God do you worship? The God that you've got to pick up and put back in his place. He doesn't pick you up and put you in your place. You put him in his place. Such is the stupidity of idolatry. And not only did he fall down once, he fell down the second time. And this time, he lost his hands and his face. And his head came off, you see. So the Philistines returned the ark to Israel. And it was left in the house of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. And for more than 20 years, it was just kept there. Until the time of David, where we read in 1 Chronicles 16 that he brought the ark up from there to Jerusalem. It it happened in two phases in chapter 15. Their their first attempt to bring the ark up saw the man, user reach out, touch the ark and die on the spot. And so Israel was fearful of God's word and were taught not to treat it as a token, not to treat it as something of unimportance. You are to tremble at the word of God. And so with great joy and great care, 
they brought the ark into Jerusalem and placed it once more in the tabernacle, not in the tent, in the temple because it hadn't been built yet Uh, Solomon David's son built the temple it's still a tabernacle at the time of David and so they placed the ark in the tabernacle the arrival of the ark into Jerusalem was a moment of great rejoicing it was a national celebration led by King David himself singing and dancing with great joy it's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 6 1 Chronicles 16 And there David appointed a thanksgiving to be sung by Asaph and his brothers. And this this thanksgiving is quite long, goes from verse 8 through to verse 36. But in the middle of the great thanksgiving, from verse 23 to 33, we find Psalm 96. It gives us the historical context of this psalm. This psalm was the psalm that they sang when they brought the ark back to Jerusalem, when God's word under King David was once more put at the center of the nation, when the great celebration happened and David danced before the Lord all day, this is the psalm that was sung. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvellous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendour and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. It's a great psalm. It's a positive psalm. It's a warm, friendly psalm. It's... It's a psalm that is written to, to turn into hymns, isn't it? It's the kind of psalm I can actually hear. One song that we sang regularly for about 10 years or so, which has just come straight out of that psalm. It's that kind of marvellous psalm. The call of the psalmist is a call not just to Israel, but to all nations. It starts with a call to sing, to sing, to sing. Sing to Yahweh. Sing a new song. Sing a song of joyfulness and gladness. For though you can sing a sad song of lament, generally singing is a matter of joy and happiness. And that's the case here in this psalm. I just walked across the bridge today. I saw this woman trying to smile and whistle at the same time. It's a very difficult thing to do. But she was happy enough that she wanted to whistle in the street. And there is a certain joy that comes with music. 
Sing praises to God. Sing to Yahweh. But notice who is to sing? All the earth. It could be all the land, for that's the meaning of the word. And that means just all the people of Israel. But the psalm goes on. It's not limited to Israel. And so the translators have used the word earth there, and they're most likely right. Sing and bless his name. The name that we know as the God who said, I am. That's who I am. I will be who I will be. The God known as Yahweh, full of grace and truth. Sing how great God is. Oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. It's just that kind of song that we be singing. But it's not only sing to Yahweh. It's also tell and declare to one and all, of his salvation for he is the God of salvation it's not just as the first couple of verses sing to him the next couple of verses tell the world announce it declare it to everybody we're not to keep secret that Yahweh has saved us we're not to keep secret that Yahweh does save us that Yahweh is our savior it's what people need to hear when I was a child, I was taught wonderful Sunday school songs, which I know some of you are old enough because you're of my generation to have learnt as well. And so I like referring to them because I can see the old people smile as they remember too. I have a saviour who's mighty to keep, mighty to keep, mighty to keep. I have a saviour who's mighty to keep 52 weeks of the year. Yes, I even see not only smiles, but people joining me and mouthing the words. It's right. I was taught as a little child that God is a saviour. That's who he is. That's his character. That's his nature. That's, that's his business. He's in the business of saving people. He's like the lifesaver down at the beach. He's there standing ready, willing and able to rescue people. It's very hard to have a negative view of a lifesaver, isn't it? A, a policeman, you can be, a, you can, well, he, he's there to punish people. He's there to put people in prison. But lifesavers, they're just there to rescue people, aren't they? And so they are giving their lives to rescue. We have a saviour. That is who God is. That is who Yahweh is. And so we're to tell of his glory to the nations, to tell of his marvellous works that are not just limited to Israel, but are among all the peoples. Here then is a universal psalm, certainly about the God of Israel, Yahweh by name, but the glorious Saviour who works his miracles everywhere. And so we're to tell of these great works that are happening, verse 3, among the nations of the peoples. For he is great, simply great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For look at the extent of his greatness. He is, verse 4, the second half, to be feared above all gods. Dagon, like any god, was feared, feared by the Philistines. But Dagon fell down flat in his face at the presence of the ark. Dagon couldn't stand in the presence of God's commandments. Dagon was seen to be the worthless idol that he was. You can't compare Yahweh to gods like Dagon. For even if they were in heaven, Yahweh was the one who made the heaven. We know the idol is worthless. 
grasp the reality that the God that the idol represents is also worthless. He is of no more value than the statue that represents him. Yahweh, though, he's the creator of heaven and earth. There is no idol, there is no statue that could ever represent Yahweh. He is the God of splendor and majesty. For in his sanctuary, the heavenly one most likely, in his sanctuary are strength and beauty and glory. And so the psalmist turns to the people of the world, the families of the peoples, as he calls them in verse 7. And matching the kind of three sing, sing, sing in the first couple of verses, he calls out three times, a scribe, a scribe, a scribe. It's a funny word, a scribe, isn't it? It means give credit to, uh, attribute to. Uh, the Wimbledon champion won because of good coaching. That's ascribing his victory to the coach or to the coaching. So we, we all the world are to ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Uh, the word glory means honour, reputation, uh, worth, uh, Give God the glory that is due to his name, Yahweh. Uh, the glory of Sydney is its harbour and its weather. Um, the glory of Usain Bolt is the speed with which he runs. The glory of Yahweh is that he is the God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the saviour and king and ruler of all nations, who does marvellous works amongst you and who is full of righteousness and grace and truth. There's the glory of Yahweh that we are to sing. And so we come into his courts bringing our offerings. But of course this is an extraordinary thing. Only Israel could come into the courts of God and bring the offerings. But here the invitation is to all people to come into the courts of Yahweh and bring offerings to him. For this psalm, all the families of the people are to worship and to tremble before the Lord. Worshiping is not simply in terms of his power and strength, but because of his holiness, his uniqueness. There is a building on the northern side of the River Thames just off the London Bridge that I like. It's owned by the Fishmongers Guild, or to be more accurate, the Worshipful Company of Fishmongers. Uh, it's a, only England could have the Worshipful Company of Fishmongers. Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh is, is one of the members of the Fishmonger. It's lovely to think that the Queen's husband is a fishmonger. However, it has its motto on its crest, which is over the door of the building. And every time I walk past it, I always stop to look at it. All worship be to God only. It's in little words just there in the yellow thing down the bottom of it. But that's the motto. All worship be to God only. The failure of the Philistine fishman God in the presence of the ark of the one and only true God, is illustrative of the fact that all worship be to God only. All peoples, all nations, all families of people should worship Yahweh and him only. 
All should tremble before him, as Isaiah 66 tells us. The one that God looks to is the person who trembles at his word. And so we're to say to all the world, Yahweh is king. Yahweh reigns. He's the creator of the world that he has established. And he is the judge of all the world. There's nobody else you are answerable to but Yahweh, our maker and our saviour, our king and our judge. You see, Christianity, as the fulfilled expression of Judaism, the Bible, it's not just for some people. It's for everybody. And you can't be singing the praises of God without telling the peoples of the world that they too should sing the praises of that God. For there is only one God and there is no other. And all worship should be to him only. Only one saviour, maker, king and judge. And so the psalm turns back then to singing. To the, to the joy of singing. Which in our English translations actually has again the same word three times let 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 which you see in verse 11 and 12 there let the heavens be glad let the earth rejoice let the sea roar and all that fills it and indeed fourth time let the fields exult and everything in it it's joy and happiness that should fill the world and in fact the trees of the forest are going to sing for joy why why is this joy coming well, because he comes. Verse 13. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. That is why the whole world will rejoice. It's a strange twist at the end. Because most of us think negatively about judgment and with very good reason because if justice were to come, we would be condemned. And yet, judgment and justice is what we need. For without judgment and justice, you have anarchy. And anarchy is appalling. Would you want to be living in Syria? Would you want to be living in Iraq? Would you want to be living in those lands where there is no judgment and there is no justice? Those who live there at the moment, northern Nigeria... They are longing for a judge to come who will put all things right, who will punish these barbarous people who are killing men, women and children, who are burning down churches. Who are, they would long for the judge to come and put things right. We live in a society that is sufficiently Christianized that we have a justice system that basically works. And so we can live with it. But when the judgment comes, the victims are finally given their day, are finally relieved, can finally come to some sense of closure on the crimes that have come upon them. The, the judgment is really important. He comes to judge, but notice how he comes to judge, because if it's not this way, it would be dreadful. He comes to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That is the nature of his judgment 
And it must be that way. Because if he came to judge them in unrighteousness and faithlessness, then we'd be worse off still. But he comes and when he does come, all things will be put right. All judgment will be a righteous judgment. It will be seen that he is faithful to his covenant words and contract that he's given to us. Jesus came into Galilee declaring the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus came bringing the righteous judgment of God. Not the condemnation, the salvation, which is preparing for the condemnation to come in the resurrection. Do you remember when he was on in Athens on the hill of Areopagus and he was speaking to the philosophers of his day there the climax of Paul's sermon on that occasion was about the Lord Jesus where he said in uh, Acts 17 and verse 31 where he says the times of ignorance God overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In the resurrection of Jesus, the sins of the world have been paid for. The judgment of God is to commence. And so the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is a coming with judgment. And so when you understand the gospel, you sing for joy, even about the judgment. And so in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, when they've seen that there is no one worthy to open the scroll and put God's plans into purposes, finally, there is the lamb that comes, the lion who is the lamb, the lamb who looks like he's been slain because he has. For the sins of the world and then everybody they sing a new song worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals they sing for you were slain and by your blood you were ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth people from every nation language and tongue now come to worship God Because the Lamb has come and the judgment of the world has commenced in his death and resurrection. God was faithful to his word. He promised he would come and he has come. And when he comes, it's not just Israel. It's all nations, tribes and languages from all over the world now can be worshipping him. And we see that. Just looking at you, I can see it ethnically right amongst us. For this city of Sydney is a great place to see how the gospel of the Lord Jesus is for every tribe, every language, every tongue. And so in the book of Revelation, at the end of it, in chapter 19 of Revelation, and in verse 11, we see, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judged and makes war that one who comes the Lord Jesus Christ comes as the faithful one 
who will judge the world in righteousness. And that is why this message is for the whole world. And so, my friends, let us sing praises to Yahweh and let us tell and declare all nations that Yahweh is king, that Jesus reigns and he is coming to save and to judge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his death and and resurrection, for the culmination of your coming judgment, that you have started the day, you've appointed the day, and given us the evidence of it, that it's underway. We thank you for the forgiveness that we can have in that judgment. But we thank you that you and your righteousness will put all things right. And so we praise you for all good things, but especially for who you are, how faithful and mighty, powerful and great you are, and that you fulfill your promises to us, even to the ends of the earth. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.